Hello, and thank you for joining us for this edition of Stratford Talks, a monthly podcast from Stratford.com that explores world events and the forces driving them. I'm Ben Sheen. In our first segment, we look back at the 2016 Summer Olympics and a conversation on the intersection of geopolitics and sports with Dr. Tolgo Zerstu and Dr. Tommy Hunt from the University of Texas at Austin. And for our second segment, we'll be joined by Stratfor CEO Dave Sakura to hear more about recent updates and upcoming news for Stratfor subscribers. So now I'd like to welcome Tolgo Zerstu and Tommy Hunt from the University of Texas at Austin, Department of Kinesiology and Health Education. Thank you for joining us on Stratfor Talks. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to be here. And also with us, we have Stratfor Senior Eurasia Analyst, Lauren Goodrich. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for joining us, Lauren. And also with Lauren, we have Senior LATAM Analyst, Reggie Thompson. Thanks for having me. So let's begin with a look at one of the dominant issues leading up to and throughout the Summer Games, and that's the athletic doping scandal involving Russian athletes. So how prevalent an issue has this really been at the Games itself? I think it's certainly been a a major public story um, that has been out there. I I think one of the things that's been missed as we think about it, when we we talk about Russian doping or about Cold War doping, we usually project it as an attempt by the other side to show the world the superiority of, of the Russian political system. And I think what's been missing in that is it's really an internal story to me that it's an attempt to convince the public that our political regime is strong. It's powerful. It's much much like military power in a way where, yes, one of it is to show the world something. Another is to convince the country that it's strong and therefore have more allegiance to the ruling regime. I'd agree with that, um, especially because of how the Russian regime and the Russian media has really kind of molded the dialogue and the, the narrative concerning the doping scandal to where it's not about doping. It's about which is, is pretty prevalent and pretty evident. It's much more about the Russian government has shaped the narrative into being an attack on Russia, very similar to what we saw in the 1980s uh, during the Cold War Games, in which um, there were 65 countries that ended up boycotting the Olympics inside of Moscow because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Um, Russia turned that into a Western attack on um, Russia via the Olympics. And we're seeing that exact same narrative this time around. Um, you even had many of the Russian athletes, uh, when they returned home, call them the Cold War Games. I think it's also important to talk about Russian doping as more than just a, a narrow subject. Um, yes, it's a, a, certainly a prominent event that's happened, but the rhetoric of, of victimhood is not just constricted to the Olympic Games. It's much wider. So you can see doping in parallel to economic sanctions, um, in parallel to um, some of the military stuff that's going on in Syria, um, where the victimhood is is not just the Olympics, but it's a much wider array of subjects. Yeah, and we've seen this pretty much since 2014, um, as soon as the EU and the West started slapping sanctions on Russia following uh, multiple events in Ukraine. Um, in which Russia started isolating itself and started uh, really resurrecting the Cold War rhetoric, claiming that the West was not only behind the events in Ukraine, but were acting in Ukraine in order to isolate Russia. Um, and then eventually, of course, that, that rhetoric turned into to eventually break Russia. Um, and so this is very similar to the kind of rhetoric that we've seen throughout the Cold War. But for Russia, it's it's a rallying point for the Russian regime and for Putin himself. Um, this isolation and this attack from the West is a way for him to really rally uh, the Russian people behind him. And we've seen nationalism soar over the last two years. 
Um, and we've seen Putin's numbers, despite the country being in one of its deepest economic recessions in over a decade, the Russian people have continued to support the Russian regime and support Putin himself um, due to this this sort of uh, propaganda. The beauty of sport for someone like Putin, that it can symbolize whatever you wanted to symbolize. And I think the line from him in the last couple of days was that the actions of the West have really undermined the fundamental humanism and spirit of fair play and excellence, something along those lines, to paraphrase. Um, so anytime you're hearing Putin talk about humanism, I think it shows you the malleability of an idea like the Olympics, that someone like Putin can immediately lay down and play the victim that just fundamental human dignity is being trampled by these doping allegations, something like that. And I think that really contributes to this victimization narrative that you're both talking about. And I think that it was evident this week when um, the Olympic athletes started to return back to Russia, they were treated like heroes, like like war heroes almost, um, in which they came home and there were crowds to cheer them on, um, like they had just returned home from war and they were given BMWs and they were given cash and um, really celebrated throughout the country. I think one of the interesting things here for Stratfor subscribers is that the average American doesn't typically pay attention to these broader economic and political issues. They, they just aren't reading the newspaper as much, but they do pay attention to sport. And so I think this is a nice entryway to talk about more complex subjects. So doping, as, as we said before, is a, is a symbol for much deeper, much wider things going on in the world. When the Olympics were uh, in Sochi, there was a lot of discussion about Russian human rights, um, something that the average American didn't know anything about until the Olympics started to take place in Sochi. Yeah, and the same thing, Beijing was framed from a lot of left-leaning Western perspectives as an opportunity to bring up issues relating to Tibet and also Chinese human rights and stuff in the West of China with the Uyghurs and that sort of stuff, too. So it's always sort of a flashpoint for these narratives to emerge. And what's interesting is that oftentimes they're sort of framed as a threat to the sanctity and stability of the games. But as far as we can tell, they never actually threaten the possibility of the games happening. So expanding on this focus of, of world events coming together, you know, through the medium of the Olympic Games, Let's look at Brazil. How did Brazil actually do hosting the Olympics? Because, you know, the country's in the midst of, of a political and economic crisis. And there was a lot of discussion coming up to the Games about whether Brazil could actually pull off the, the spectacle. So, Reggie, how do you think they did? So the Brazilian case is kind of interesting because it shows how, despite the fact that you have um, ideological pressures, political pressures, economic pressures, and just general uh, outside environment influencing the, the Olympic Games and sporting events as a whole, you have uh, the Olympics essentially just being a media event uh, completely isolated from the outside pressures of the country hosting it. So Leading up to the Olympic Games in Brazil, what we saw was um, the media narrative about whether Brazil was ready to hold the Games, whether or not the infrastructure built for the Games was going to be sufficient to ferry people around Rio de Janeiro, whether or not the security problems that Brazil has faced for several decades that are improving steadily, but but that are still a factor in the in the Brazilian landscape, whether those were going to affect the Games and the tourists and the athletes attending the Games. And what we saw was that really the Olympics in Brazil, they were a two-week event. Uh, the security around the Games was sufficient to prevent most of the really large concerns that people were worried about. And uh, really just how successful Brazil was carrying out these Games, despite the fact that the country is mired in the worst recession in 25 years, despite the fact that they are currently involved in impeaching uh, their, their president uh, and the, all the political baggage that that really brings – Really, Brazil was very successful in holding these games. I think you've largely hit the nail on the head. Um, as a as strictly an athletic competition, I think they were pretty successful. 
You saw very few hiccups, uh, a, a green swimming pool, relatively good security, very good security. I think if you define success in hosting the games from a larger perspective, meaning transportation reform, environmental reform, and this is how the games were sold to Brazilians, that this is an opportunity to clean up the city, to provide better infrastructure, and we're going to build the infrastructure, I think they largely failed. Transportation was built in, but they were largely between affluent areas of the city rather than from poorer areas of the city. I think the environmental position wasn't really helped by holding the games, um, and so the sustainability wasn't there, and I'm not sure that the infrastructure is optimal moving forward for the future. Which is seen in pretty much most Olympics. I mean, think of Beijing, in which they shut down the city uh, drivers for an entire week leading into the game, so there wasn't enough smog, but as soon as the games are over, everyone's driving again. Yeah, and I think calling it a two-week media event is probably the best way to really think about it. I mean, part of it is they're the kind of smoke and mirrors of the whole thing that, yes, Brazil was the host nation and Rio was the host city, but the real host of the Olympics is the International Olympic Committee and it always will be wherever it is. And I think the number at the end of the day was 13 billion between TV deals and marketing, which I think is somewhere like around the GDP of Nicaragua. And the IOC keeps about 70% of that. So yes, that's big time. Yeah, so it is this sort of artificial thing that gets dropped in to these different staging areas. And I think, um, again, if you're being really cynical with the media narratives, there's almost a sense that focusing on Zika or readiness or security allows the IOC and the local organizing committee to sort of take credit for overcoming those things and sweep all this other stuff that ostensibly was supposed to happen, these legacy projects of infrastructure, of transport, of public health, et cetera, et cetera. Those can kind of get forgotten and brushed under the rug uh, when we can focus on it was a great success. And of course, what we're really not talking about in here is that at the end of the day, a lot of us, no matter how how cynical we can get, how negative we can get about all the stuff that goes into these games and the events like this, uh, the athletes are awesome. And it's awesome to watch people do awesome things. And we had a lot of that this time around. And that always helps to kind of manipulate these emergent narratives just long enough for the IOC and the attending athletes to pack up and go home, and then things kind of go back to normal. Rusev is still on the chopping block. I think an, an interesting thing to talk about moving forward is we're seeing fewer and fewer bids from cities to host the Olympics because they're, they're so extremely expensive. And I think that fewer Western, democratic, developed countries are going to be willing to go through this type of thing. We saw Boston remove their bid for the upcoming Summer Olympics, and um, that's no accident. So Korea will be hosting, followed by Tokyo, followed by Beijing again. For 2024, most of the non-Western bids have fallen by the wayside, and now the final four contenders are Rome, Paris, Budapest, and Los Angeles. And I don't know much about the European bids, but I know the LA bid is heavily leaning on all sorts of really sort of progressive uh, environmental initiatives and ideas that this would be the most sustainable games. And that may be sort of pushed forward by Tokyo in 2020, who have um, set the bar very high in terms of some of the technologies and stuff they hope to be using. All the metals are going to be melted down from used cell phones, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, they're going to create, allegedly, a fake meteor shower, an artificial meteor shower in the opening games. Um, so it's still kind of a, a venue for progress. Um, but to get back to the original point of the sort of geography, we are in this sort of Pacific Asian stretch where we'll be to Korea next for the Winter Games in Pyeongchang, Tokyo, and then back to Beijing. Uh, so it's clear that the sort of classic balance of power and where these things end up has definitely shifted. Well, I think that's a perfect point to end on, uh, certainly looking to the future and, and what uh, coming years and coming Olympic Games will hold. Uh, Tolga, Tommy, Lauren, Reggie, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And with us now, we have Stratfor's CEO, Dave Sakura to talk about some exciting new developments on the horizon for the company. Dave, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Now, you took over the reins in May. What have you found most interesting about your time here with Stratfor so far? Well, great question. And first, I'd like to say the, the people. I mean, there's just a fantastic team here. They're incredibly smart and, in particular, very, very intellectually curious. It makes life here very interesting. Second, the content and the analysis is just phenomenal. And that's what folks look to Strat for for is the great work that our team of analysts do. And, and then lastly, I would say that there is a tremendous opportunity to dramatically grow this business, leveraging all the great work that's been done over the last 20 years. Fantastic. And I know there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes to really take what we do and boost it to the next level. What can you tell us about what's happening? Yeah, there's a lot going on. We're making really significant investments in every area, but in particular, three areas of focus. The first is around branding and user engagement refresh. And so the company I'd mentioned has been around for 20 years. And we felt like even though the content is phenomenal, that we could really use to brighten up the website and enhance the user experience. And secondly, we're really formalizing our product strategy and we're trying to draw more distinguishing characteristics between our consumer and enterprise product offerings. And then lastly, we're going to be launching a whole new family of enterprise products. We've done a lot of work with some great companies over the years. And so we have great opportunities to build out a more formalized program for various industry segments and uh, personalities in those big companies. So in what ways are we improving the way that users interact with our website? And are there any more updates or changes we can expect to see in the coming months or in 2017? Oh, yeah, there's going to be a whole lot of changes here ongoing. And the, these changes will actually culminate in a very large user experience website refresh early in 2017. But more specifically, we're trying to build a user experience that's more friendly, cleaner, and easier to find and consume our great content. And secondly, we're adding more software-like functionality for folks to communicate with Stratfor and enabling forums where our members, they can engage with us or potentially even engage with one another. So lots of exciting things in the pipeline, overlay information technology with our great content. Fantastic. And, and Dave, I have to ask, are there any personal messages that you'd like to share with our listeners right now? Absolutely. I'd like to underscore that we're making millions of dollars of investments across every area of Stratfor's business, and all of it is really focused on continuing to deliver great analysis and much better user experiences. And so I really appreciate the loyalty that our members have shown over the years and look forward to continuing the dialogue with you and hearing more about about your opinions about where we are and where we're headed, please feel free to reach out to me anytime. Once again, thanks a lot for your loyalty over the years. Dave, thank you so much for joining us here today and uh, best of luck for the future. Thank you. I'm having a lot of fun and uh, happy to be here today. Well, that's all we've got time for today, but be sure to tune in next month for more Stratford Talks. In the meantime, if you'd like to stay up to date on any of the topics we've discussed today, be sure to visit stratford.com for the latest insights and analysis. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.